So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Who would never do anything until they knew the answer. Like this is why most entrepreneurs aren't necessarily great students because they just iterate. They figure out they, they don't know, right? And so part of this is like the one thing I talk about jobs we've done as a, as a research method is it's hypothesis building research. It's not hypothesis proving research. Most people try to form a hypothesis and then go, you know, test and make sure that they can they test the null hypothesis etc and it's one of those things where it's like I, and i would keep going like i'm just not smart enough to know so let me go talk to you welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Bob Mesta. Bob, thanks for making time for this. Jess, thanks for having me on. So as I mentioned a little bit before we got started here, I originally found out about the Jobs Framework and and the work that you've done with Clayton Christensen and others from his book competing against luck yeah. and then the more i like stalked you on youtube the, uh, the more of a fan i became so when i discovered your newest book here demand side sales 101 i don't know i was really excited i i just told you i've, I've listened to it twice already and watched a bunch yeah. of your other interviews so excited you could come on the show today for for people who are not familiar with your background can you talk about yeah. helping innovate on 3500 products and startups and department yep. of defense and the, the very things you've done yep So I would start with, I'm 55, but I've been breaking things for at least 50 years. I've been fixing things for probably 45 years, but I've, I've been building for 30 years. So when I was a little kid, I had, I was a little too aggressive and ambitious and I ended up having uh, three very uh, close head brain injuries that limit me from reading and writing. And so, and I've always wanted to build, if you will. And so it's one of those things where for me, I got a dream job actually in, in, when I was in college, I actually met a guy by the name of Dr. Deming, who is uh, innovator number four over there. These are my, these are my four mentors, if you will. It's Dr. Willie Moore, Genichi Taguchi, Clay Christensen, and Dr. Deming. And, and he took me to Japan and taught me a lot of the methods and tools to help uh, build innovations. And that's where I met Dr. Taguchi. And to be honest, I worked for Ford Motor Company right out of the, out of school and probably worked on at least a thousand different products. So though it might be one car, but you had, like I worked on engines, I worked on transmissions, I worked on tires, I worked on suspensions, I worked on seats, I worked on paint, I worked on, you name it. I, I were just almost, you know, week after week, it was my, my job was from an improvement perspective. And then it was about, then they pulled me into innovation to help build the new or latest and greatest or the, the next version of something. And so from that, basically, I've been innovating in, I'll say, uh, hard goods, uh, automotive. I did defense for a while. I worked in food. I've worked in financial services. I've worked in insurance. I've worked in uh, software, lots of software in the last 10 years. 
I've done uh, seven startups myself. And for the most part, I just like to build stuff. Like that's just who I am. So, and, and this notion of jobs to be done is the premise that people don't buy products. They hire them to make progress in their life. And so to me, I would get a lot of marketing information around demographics of who they were, but I'd never get, you know, where they buy, why they buy, when they buy, like all the other contextual variables wrapped around it. And it would be very hard to develop. And so developed this notion with Rick Petey and John Palmer, some other people, and basically built a way in which to kind of see the context and the outcomes that people are seeking. And to be honest, I've been doing it for 30 years and Clay Christensen, who's been a very good friend for 25 is, was kind enough to, to partner and help build it into a theory. So it's called the jobs to be done theory. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, so I'm a, a nerd for innovation. You know, this is, we're lucky enough that depending on the day, this is either the number one or number two rated innovation podcast in the world, according to wow. iTunes, right? Oh, wow. And had, you know, a couple million downloads so far and all these fancy people come on it. But what I don't talk about on this show as much is I also, one of the other companies I own called Greystoke Advisors, we teach operational excellence classes. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the Shingo Institute? Yeah, Shing- Shingo Method. Yeah, the Red X. Is that yes, right? uh, like oh, Shigio I- Shingo, who used to work yeah. for Toyota. Yep. So, I, I believe I believe that I met him when I was in Japan with Dr. Taguchi. Okay. So like, you know, it was Duran, Deming, Taguchi, all those kinds of, you know, Fukuhara, Ishikawa, like all those people. I was 18, 19 years old and I, I didn't know who any of these people were until <laughs> lot, later <laughs> in my life. But it was kind of like, I actually thought Dr. Dr. Deming was one of my friend's grandfather, father, and what it really wasn't. It was like, wait, who are you? That's <laughs> very funny. Well, it's, it's incredible, right? I get to go on these... I've, I've been on these tours. So I'm not the genius at that. I'm just like a diehard fan. I hired these guys who are like, you know, my, my lead trainer is a guy who spent four years at Ford as well, but 35 oh, okay. years at GE, you know, he was in charge of the operational excellence for 85 aerospace plants. His name's yeah, Rick wow. He's amazing. Right. Wow. And he goes, we, we teach, you know, our like Stanford university and Charles Schwab and air Canada and all these people come to us and we teach them these operational excellence classes. Right. So as a result, you like you learn like, man, Deming was a genius at being part of that world. Well, and yeah. what's fun for me is like, you know, I look at the way so many of, especially in, in the West, people have skipped parts of, you know, lean continuous improvement, right? Yes. And like you hear, you know, if you watch YouTube videos of Clay talking about like when people they they only optimize things, right? They yep. end up they end up making room for entrants to come, come down. Yeah, they, the they only right? go up market. Exactly. Right. right? And so you end up, you end up locally optimizing or going up market and you, you end up creating a, an underserved market that basically is willing to, you know, or non-consumption where people can't do something and somebody from the low end can literally walk in and trump you. And, and what Clay was able to kind of, you know, find out is basically how does that really work? And he started with the premise of how do people who are at the very top of their game with the smartest people at the management level end up going out of business? Like, how is that possible? And it's like, and my, my thing is, is Deming said it best. I think he said, you know, uh, a bad system will crush a, a great person every time. And what Clay identified was kind of the underlying systemic problems of like, we always have to make more margin. We always want to go up market. There's always going to be higher demand and people will value us more at the higher end. And it leaves us very vulnerable. And so to be honest, that's where I've been 
targeting most of my innovations my whole life is at the low end of the market, not knowing really what disruption was. And that's how Clay and I got to be friends. Well, this is what was so exciting for me is after, you know, chasing like the idea genealogy of where yeah. that stuff, finding yeah. out that like this innovation stuff that I have so much respect for, and obviously Clay is so well known globally, but you know, and, and things like in competing against like this, going after non-consumption, I know you talk about, right? Yeah. Yep. For me to end up finding out that that stuff also came from Deming and this like yep. customers aren't buying what you think you're selling. So, yeah, yeah. For me, it was fascinating. It's like the misapplication of those methodologies yes. systematically wrecks companies. And yet application of like the fuller thinking of those geniuses is how you can reinvent yourself and, and actually help the customer in the way they want to be helped instead of right. just comparing yourself to the competition. For me, it was like intellectually very interesting and like only drew me into it more because I feel like the work that those guys done, it's like a, it's like a martial yeah. art for like having your employees like their job better, make the company more money and have the boss's job easier. Right. Right. Well, that, and that's, to be honest, when, when people really kind of dive deep, it's like, okay, I'm gonna, I need to take you back to, to Gucci's notion of systems thinking. And it's like, well, is that systems thinking? I'm like, no, not really. Let me, and it's one of those things that I'm working very hard to try to write about because it's not your traditional Peter Senge or, or Jay Forrester kind of notion of systems. And so uh, I'm working with Ryan Singer right now to kind of articulate kind of the level of thinking we're talking about when we talk about systematizing something and we're calling it system design as an aspect of trying to understand the how the things go together. And it's a more of a synthesis process than an analysis process. It's very, very interesting because it's it's what Deming or Taguchi would talk about, but like he would use language that everybody else knew and they would kind of then assume it meant what Jay Forrester meant or Peter Singe meant, not what he meant. And so it's, it's very interesting that there's a lot of gaps when you dive deep into what you, these these amazing people kind of were talking about. So I'm I'm I look at myself as a vessel. I mean, I'm a dyslexic illiterate kid from Detroit who for all pra practical purposes shouldn't, you know, should be working either on the line or being a baggage handler or something, but not not doing what I'm doing and they've taught me different methods and tools to do that. So it's actually my next book is called Learning to Build and it's this the five skills that that what I see is the people that I've innovated with, like it's the five hidden skills that people have when they're really good innovators or entrepreneurs. So I really want to get into how can the jobs to be done framework be used when you don't have any customers to go ask them why they bought. Uh, and yes. it's that, you know, what, what about before we have the product? What about before we've sold the first customer? Uh, what yeah. are the, what's the difference in that type of a jobs to be done interview? But the first thing I want to bring up is that I appreciate how open you are with those challenges you've overcome and talking about your dyslexia and stuff. My, I've got four kids, uh, my 14 year old son, like, you know, he's like in finishing the eighth grade and mm -hmm. he kind of, he kind of writes like, like he's in elementary school and yep. just transposes letters and yep. it, it's, it's kind of that's a problem, me. right? But he, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. It's well, a problem for everybody the, else, but not a problem necessarily for him, but he, right? it, it takes, takes time. But yet he can listen to audiobooks at three and a half speed at almost a hundred percent retention. Yep. And even in elementary school, like it got to the point we go to parent teacher interviews, they test him for reading comp for, for like auditory comprehension. And he would test five grades ahead. Mm -hmm. And like the teachers would say, yeah, I did get to this point in class where Bridget raises hand and bring up some random science fact. 
And I would be like, eh, I don't know about that. And I'd look it up and he was right every time. So by the end of the year, we just started saying, well, if Bridge said it, I'm sure it's right. Kind of <laughs> thing, you know? So awesome. I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to raise entrepreneurs. That's this, yes. like, this is my goal in life, my four kids. Right. Yeah. And so I love when people like Richard Branson talk about their dyslexia and, and, their learning challenges and how overcoming them actually helped them create like the 80-20 Pareto principle systems that did what they did. And you look at like really the outsized impact you've had in the innovation world. And maybe some of that is not in spite of those challenges, but because those challenges forced you to think different. And I, I think that, I think that, that my disability has created some unique abilities that if I hadn't had the disability, I wouldn't have figured out. And I think that the, 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 the challenges I had forced me to think about things differently and create new ways to think about things. And so, for example, the way my mom, my mom was a remedial reading teacher in Detroit public schools, and she taught me how to read by looking at a paragraph. And the first thing I would see when I saw a paragraph were all the spaces between the words. I could see every space. And she'd, she'd say, all right, well, what's that word? And I'm like, mm, I, I, I don't know. And if a word was too small, because I saw the word from the beginning and the end simultaneously, and they would kind of merge in the middle. And so we learned to basically, I needed a, a word that was at least seven letters long or longer to understand it. And that we would circle the five largest words on a, on a, in a paragraph and then guess what that paragraph is about. And ultimately, it just gave me pattern recognition abilities. Like, why is this word here? And you'd think about sequence. You'd think about like, but once you had the words, it's like, what do those words have in common? And so part of it was being able to kind of uh, see patterns. And so for me, it's, it's the other part is, is the auditory part, you know, like your son. I, when I do interviews, I don't just listen to what people say, but I listen to how they say it because you can say the exact same words completely differently and, and end up having a very different next question, which is that was really great versus that was really great. Right. And, and, <laughs> and so, so to me, the, 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 the written word is literally flat because I don't have the pauses and the intonation and the, 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 the color wrapped around it. And so to me, the fact is, is like, that's why the auditory uh, portion of it is very, very important to me because I don't like, it's very hard to have to listen to a book that an author hasn't read because at some point the, 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 the talent reads it in a different way. So I have somebody, I, I had multiple people read the book and the person that I actually uh, had to read the book because I tried. And the problem is I can't, I, I could memorize a certain part of it, but it got to a point where my brain would just shut down. And so it was just too hard to do, but it's, it's the intonations that are really, really important. Yeah. You know, I think about like my ADD, right. And yeah. like, you know, I'm the guy who can go land the multi-million dollar sale, mm-hmm. but then will like forget to send the invoice to get the money. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, like, I, to- I can totally relate to that. Like, I love your book and my readers or our listeners know this, but like, you know, if you don't count 300 Jason Bourne genre books, I've listened to like 800 or 850 books in the last decade or 12 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And I read like maybe a book a year. I don't think I read a book last year but I listen to three to four books a week. Right. Yeah, 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 Right. And, and so to me, I just love like this, like honesty about this honesty without like shame kind of thing, because I think so many of like the innovators, the entrepreneurs, like we do not fit the mold of for a lot of acceptable society. And there's a lot of covering that up and there's a lot of pretending we do fit the mold. And so again, I just appreciate people like you and Richard Branson. I think the, the, have you listened to uh, end of average by Todd Rose? 
Nope, but I'm writing it down oh, right now. God, it's, it's probably the single best book. I listen to it every year. It's it's just reminds me all the time, but it's really about the notion of how average came about and how average is actually not a good thing. And the reason why we don't feel we fit in is because we don't fit the average or we actually don't fit above average. And so this is the notion of like, if you if you got an A in, in math, you must get an A in reading. The fact that we should be symmetrical around our abilities and and all of that comes from this notion of like the, the average and it's it's one of those things where i think when i took my college entrance exams i i think i had almost a, a perfect score on math and i had the lowest possible score in english and it was one of these schools that finally said like you know well you're good at something we might as well have you come in <laughs> right <laughs> but i i never did well in in in, in writing and and the interesting part is, so so I wrote a book, right? I've wrote, I've I've always had to find partners to uh, write a book. So I helped Clay with competing against luck. I I wrote a book called Choosing College with Michael Horn. I've done the you know the Jobs to Be Done handbook, but this book, Demand Side Sales, I found a process called uh, Scribe Media or a company called Scribe Media. Yeah, we had we had Tucker on the show. Yeah, so Tucker's Tucker amazing, right? So so they they literally have. So I have. I started this one end of last year and was published by September. I literally have my second a second book with them. I'm just wrapping it up this this next week and then I'll basically have the full manuscript by February and they read it to me. So they actually read every chapter to me. But we talk they have an interview process, a very amazing process, but it sounds like me. I mean, if you if you were to pick up my book and and listen to it or read it, you'd think that it was me. It has my intonation, it has my patterns, it has my stories, it has all that kind of stuff in it. That's just the the, the writer did an amazing job. So what they did is they found people who love to write and paired him with me, who I have a lot of ideas of what to do, but I, but I can't write. And to be honest, we just, we have a blast. It's, it's, so I have pretty much, I'm trying to do two books a year for the next four years. I've already got kind of a, a roadmap, if you will, but they, it changes every couple of weeks or so, but every, every chance I get, I'm trying to get the thoughts out of my head again, mostly to, to, to pay homage to these people who taught me all these things. And you know, their, their learning or their teachings are, seem to be going out of style. And so I, I like, I'm trying to get back to some of the fundamentals so I can actually pass on what was passed to me. So, you know, I, I would take very little credit for any of these things, but more repackaging them to helping, to helping them work for me. And then basically talking about kind of where I learned it from and kind of where it, where it's going to, where it should go, or, you know, trying to find the next the next set of vessels to actually kind of move it, move the knowledge forward. I love that you've got them in front of you like that. I am, I had taken a bunch of my mentors and made a screen background for my mm -hmm. computer, but then over time it ended up getting changed, whatever. So seeing your list makes me want to print them out and just stick them on my office wall in front of yeah, me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty humbling when you kind of go, all right, what would Clay say? What like, what, or what would Deming do about this? Or what would Taguchi frame that? And so, as I have problems, I'm, I, I found that by putting them up and having them, you know, in front of me, I, I have, I've spent what I would say are very quality time with each one of these four people. Like Clay, I had four hours a quarter for over 27 years with no agenda, right? And Dr. Dr. Deming, I, I didn't have that much time with him, but I had a lot of time with Dr. Taguchi and Dr. Dr. Moore. So to me, it's, it's, it's passing on that and making sure that I'm, I'm spending that time with people who would be like me, that they, like they spent with me, I'm spending with other people. So fun. 
Well, listen, can we jump into this idea of, you know, I, I love sales. I listen to tons of books on sales and yeah. what I think is magic because it's, it's, you know, I'm 25 years into my sales career. I've owned two sales training companies so far. I've, I've trained top sales reps from Microsoft and Oracle and all sorts of industries. Right. Yep. But my, my point is for me, it is like a craft. And like, I spent my early twenties trying to get out of sales because, you know, like, <laughs> being a salesman is like really prestigious in society, kind of like out there with yeah. being a garbage man, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. So anyways, and then I realized, oh, if you get really good at this, it actually pays incredibly well. And then ended up being the perfect on-ramp for entrepreneurship, which yep. I think is constant selling. Like even when I'm- I, I Always, you're selling at, you're selling uh, uh, co-founders, you're selling investors, you're selling customers, you're selling employee, like, like yep. you're not really selling. The, the interesting part is that that I, I it was very icky for me, and it was one of those things. Like I had I had some people help me kind of reframe it into how do I help people make progress. And once I saw it that way, it was like I'm not selling. I'm really just helping people. And if it's not like I'm okay with no because they're not ready for it, or I, I'm okay with no because they're going to do something else. And but how do I help people? And once I kind of took that flip, made that switch flip in my head. God, it was like, I wasn't selling at all. It was literally just helping, which is what I, that, that's, that's what gives me energy. You know, I will say what you said sounds so simple, <laughs> um, but it's not, I know, but it's, it's so impactful. I look at my early twenties. I made way more money than my friends mm -hmm. and I was doing more of the like seller be sold, like combative style of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, almost like debate sales and like, you know, learning the word tricks and the verbal judo and the, you know what I mean? And right. And, and I made good money. I was persistent, yeah. I, right? But then I, I ended up getting into more like the trusted advisor type of yeah. sale. Like, uh, I don't know if you know the Arbinger Institute out here in Utah, like leadership and self-deception. I was a client for years and then I ended up going and working for them for a couple of years. But this idea of like, kind of like, can I temporarily set my desire for a commission aside and just get really, really concerned about solving their problem and like earn an invitation to their side of the negotiating table, right? Yep. That's when I, that's when I started, you know, making, you know, well, that's how I became a millionaire at 24. And yep. even though I lost it, I made it again in my twenties, yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And then lost again. So this third time I'm buying commercial real estate so I can keep <laughs> it. Okay. But but my point is, it's funny though, how those lessons can be forgotten. We, we've been so excited about our new fund idea that I basically was doing throw up and show up. I was in such a rush and I had, had, I'd figured out this perfect thing that I wanted to buy and I knew the outcome would be beneficial for others. And I just assumed that they would see the path. And I, I think we successfully, we successfully built something that nobody wanted, you know, Which, and <laughs> I've been there. And, <laughs> and so reading your book in the last month has been so amazing to be like, okay, we went actually did those customer interviews and realized, oh yeah, this is too complicated. Let's pull it back to what they're actually looking for. But I kind of feel like I like need to start with the beginner's mind all over again. So yep, always. for people who aren't familiar with, with Jaws to be done interviews, can you walk us through some tips of you don't have any customers yet. You don't even have specifically what your product is. You know what you're, yep. you basically yep. know what you're doing. Yep. But can, can you start us off oh, with ways? Yeah, to yeah. So, so, so the notion of job, so first of all is again, being a dyslexic, the gift is, is that I'm always going to start with a D or an E grade in whatever I try. And so I know that I don't know. And all those A students who would never do anything until they knew the answer. Like this is why most entrepreneurs aren't necessarily great students because they just iterate, they figure out they they don't know. Right. And so part of this is, 
like the one thing I talk about jobs we've done as a, as a research method is it's hypothesis building research. It's not hypothesis proving research. Most people try to form a hypothesis and then go, you know, test and make sure that they can, they test the null hypothesis, et cetera. And it's one of those things where it's like, I, and I would keep going like, I'm just not smart enough to know. So let me go talk to a few people. So the, the, there's a couple of underlying principles that, I, that we have in jobs to be done. One is that everything is caused. There is no random, right? And that this is again, Deming kind of going like, you know, at some point, if you can't, if you can't describe what you're doing as a system, then you actually don't know what you're doing, right? And so we end up trying to go back and forth and understand like what caused somebody to say today's the day they bought a mattress or they bought a, a product of any sort. And it's really what you start to realize is that context creates as much value and that contrast creates meaning. And so you start to realize, like, if I don't know what, what people, why people do what they do, I got to understand that thing first before I develop a product, because I need Like for me, the second principle is that all innovations start with a struggling moment. If we don't struggle with something as a consumer or a customer, we will literally keep doing what we've been doing. We are creatures of habit. It is hard for us to change and we don't really want to change. And so to me, it's finding where those struggling moments happen. What context are they in? What are they trying to get done they can't do? And why does the current product not work? And why haven't they switched to something else? And so when you don't have a product yet, my suggestion is, is you figure out what would people stop using if they were to buy your product? And then what I would do is go and study those things of say, why in the world does somebody buy this? So for example, we were building a product that goes in the home that helps your, let's say your grandmother or elderly uh, parents basically remind them to take their medicines, basically keep them company, do different things. And it didn't exist three, four years ago, it, something like that didn't exist. And so what we did is we went off and interviewed people who bought home healthcare, like, like somebody to come in and, you know, spend time with your parents or basically adult daycare or first alert or, and you, you look at kind of how did they make that decision? And you start to realize like, it's not the parent that actually makes the decision. It's the kids who make the decision. Right. And so you start to realize all these different other things. So we always try to find the adjacencies and that in, in the jobs world, I say there is actually no new consumption. There's no more time in the world. And so what will people stop doing now that they're doing this? Right. And you could say, well, when Facebook came out, like it was nothing like it in the world. Yeah. But here's the thing is people still did the, 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 the Sunday call. Now they don't do the Sunday call. <laughs> Right. And so it's, it's literally gonna, they're going to stop doing something. And so to me, I'm always trying to say like, so when an entrepreneur comes to me and says, Oh, I want to like, I want to build this product. I'm like, okay, what struggling moment is addressing? What are people not going to buy? Because this is now there. Right. And, and how, how are they actually going to value it? And how does it actually fit in their life? And how do they get rid of the old? And it's those kinds of frames that we wrap around things that help people understand what's the progress that your consumer or customer is going to make by having your product in their lives. And so it, this is where in the book, I talk about the difference between supply side, which is, hey, I'm going to build this product or the service and demand side, which is I have, they have the struggling moment and, and they have some progress in mind. And how do I actually get the supply side and the demand side to meet? And so what I, what I, what I realized very early on is that I end up defining my customer by my product and that's just wrong.
right? Like if I make a mattress, like, well, how many people need a mattress? Well, every hotel needs one. Every, everybody needs a mattress. And it's like, well, no, the fact is, is most people mattresses are okay. So how do you know who's really needs a new mattress? And it's like, well, it could be moving, but now you have to wrap around the context that says what causes somebody to say today's the day they need a new mattress. The crazy part, and it gets, comes from the end of average is you start to realize there's not one reason, but there's not a million and there's sets of things that are what we call jagged and, and that they actually are pathways by which they do it. And so there's really only four different pathways of what causes somebody to buy a new mattress, four different context and outcome situations that allow you to kind of say, all right, this is how we, have, and they actually buy very differently, right? And they, they actually value the mattress very differently. And so you actually have four different value situations as opposed to what's, what's your product worth? Because your product is actually worth more in some situations and less in other situations. And that's what we're tra- trying to take into account is what is the value code by which somebody decides to buy your product or service over somebody else's, right? And the crazy part is you start to realize some of the competitors to a new mattress are things like Zequil, right? Right. We ran an ad with a mattress company at one point and said, you know, how many bottles of Z-Quil are you going to buy before you realize you need a new mattress? You know, and we had like a 40% bump in sales, <laughs> right? Because they just couldn't connect the dots. Yeah. So um, when you think about that, well, can we use me as an example? Can we, sure. can we play this? Always. So, you know, we, we have a bunch of wealthy friends, especially entrepreneurs. That's just kind of our community, right? Mm-hmm. Who they, they're either making great money in the business or they had an exit and they've got some cash, but they're not so rich. They can buy like big giant buildings by themselves per se, mm-hmm. yep. but they, but they have been buying part, you know, syndicated real estate investments. They're buying part of a building with some other guys mm-hmm. grouped together and buy part of a building. Mm-hmm. So we, why? Why? Why well, this invest is, in that? And this is my question. We don't have customers yet. And so as I'm trying to discover, like, if I ask them, so I have, I've started doing, you know, I've done, you know, maybe a dozen of these hour long interviews I've recorded since I reached out to you about coming on the show. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I've been asking when you've bought real estate investments in the past, why, like, how did you know that was the one for you? And like, why do you like real estate? Why real estate in general? How, and then how did you know that was the one for you? And a lot of times they say things like, well, I really trusted those guys. And I'm like, I'm not getting, what, what, I'm not getting that causality. That? Yeah. But here's the thing is, what does that mean? How did they, how did you earn trust with people that you've only met three times? And the, do you, this is where you got, so the, 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 the interview method is actually built on criminal and intelligence interrogation. Like, like, wait, this is where you got to go. Like, wait a second. What do you mean? You trusted them. Like, what did they do to demonstrate trust? And where's the money now? Like, why, do, why does the money need to be moved now? Why not something else? And this is where you have to, you have to push them because at some point in time, it might be the, it's, it's, it might be a portfolio issue, right? It's not, it's not where they want to put it. It's where they want to get money out of. Well, right? and this is, this is why I was like so excited to have you on the show is again, I read three to four books a week. And as far as I'm concerned, yours is my absolute favorite material out there on discovering causality. I, you know, I think you're the best in the world at this. And so my, my question is, as I'm trying to uncover what's been going on in their life, because they had those feelings about real estate before whatever the like inciting event was that they actually looked at it or, or why, what was going on for them that when somebody pitched them on it, they were actually open to it, whatever. Any advice on like digging into that causality of why now? So, so here's the thing. I, I've got to, can I share my screen? Is that all right? Yeah, whatever. yeah. So, so this is, this is the basic premise. Let's see, I'm going to go share screen. I do this one, share. 
and you can see that right mm -hmm. do the presentation so here's the thing is 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 think of your real estate investment as the river right and and at some point in time they've come up you know it's the answer right or you know how they're going to get across and so the question is what's the struggling moment that says today's the day i need to move my investments right so part of it is there has to be a struggling moment to say like you know what what made this time what was building up what were they afraid of as they got here they realized whatever the thing is is that if they don't reach this river's edge they don't change so what caused them to say today's the day they should change and then when they when they make the investment what causes them to be like what are they hoping for on the other side right because we all know that investments are risky investments you can't get a permanent return you get like like what 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 is it that they're going to actually feel like when they're over here and so the way i talk about it is like why are you at this river's edge what do you what do you see that's on the other side that makes it better and then how much energy do you have to get across? Because I can actually come up with a thousand different ways to get across that river. I can get yeah. them a boat. I can build a dock. I can teach them to swim. I can dig a tunnel. I can make a bridge. I can get a plane. I can, like, I got a thousand ways to help them make progress. And so you're caught up in that it's a real estate investment. And my aspect is, is help me understand the progress they're trying to make. And, and then ultimately, what is the hiring and firing criteria by which they do it? So here's the crazy part. Most people just focus on where people put their money, right? But they don't actually understand, like part of it might be is that their portfolio grew in a certain way and they need to actually move money. And so they're not actually buying this. They're actually, they, they grew too big in something else. So the underlying causality is like, this grew like crazy and I need to actually go find another place. And I typically buy things uh, buy things low and sell things high. And so you start to realize then what are you hoping for? But the reality is you have to, it, so to me, it doesn't like, so even people who switch their investments and you'd say, well, why not real estate? How do people decide that real estate's the right thing versus something else? What else is in their portfolio, right? Why real estate? Why why not just own it? Why not own smaller buildings? Why own bigger buildings? What's what's the risk associated with those things? And so part of it is being able to understand what are what's the ultimate progress they're trying to make. And it's not like oh, it's got a great return. Everything has a everything has the promise of a great return. But what is it like? How is how is a stock different than owning a owning a, a building in yeah. their mind, emotionally and socially? Do they want to be able to say, I own that building? Do they really feel like I, I want to own tangible assets? What 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 is it? You know, it it leads me to a couple of questions. I want to get your feedback on these. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, so my buddies who already throw 50 or 100 grand at a building when it gets offered to them, right? Yep. It's why? almost like it's so there's the why and there's the and there's the why would they ever switch from the people they've been doing that with project after project before. Exactly. Right. So even if they've and been then, doing, exactly right. OK. And then my other question is we're going to use like equity crowdfunding and try and go after non-consumption. Like instead of 50 or 100 grand, we want to like we're going to use regulation CF or regulation A plus and do offerings where somebody can put in 10 bucks. Like yep. your first, like maybe this isn't your first real estate investment. Maybe this is your first investment ever in yep. your life. And yep. you're putting like 50 bucks or 500 bucks into your first investment because you're finally like, honey, we have got to start saving our retirement so, or something. So if that's the case, right? My thing is, is to actually go do some interviews with people who, who started with some of the, just the, there's two sides. One is they went and got money from, from, from a crowdsource lending source, or they put money into a crowdsource based lending source. Like what would cause you to say today's the day I'm going to put my money in 
uh, what's it called? What are some of those? Fundrise or Origin or any of these? Any of those? Like, what, like why? Why would you? Ones, yeah. Why would you? Why would you do that? And what? What? Like why not? What? At some point in time, what is it about it? And there's the you know you start to realize that it's actually a very different meaning than what you think. Part of it is, for example, I I want to know the people I'm helping with my money, right? Some people is that it's the fact is is like at some point I don't trust the banks. Right. This way I can actually know what my, you know, I, I can diversify my risk because it's, I, I give a, a little bit to a lot of things like, but you start to realize like one of the things that they want is they actually feel like they're more in control where, where somebody else managing, it doesn't give them the sense of control. And again, everybody's different, but you have to be able to start to understand what causes people to say today's the day. And so we talk about, you know, so another tenant, if you will, of, of jobs is that there's motivations are basically broken into three different types of energy or three different types of things. One is functional, right? This would be the return. This would be basically risk, the risk management part of it. Social, basically, for example, are there people actually putting 50 in because they don't want to be left out, <laughs> right? Which is a real thing, right? Or are they putting 50 in because they want to tell everybody else they put 50 into that? They want to say they own parts of a whole bunch of buildings. Sometimes people want to say it, some people don't. And then emotionally, is this more like, does it give you comfort? Does it felt it makes you feel, you know, what what is what's the what's the emotional side of this thing? And so part of this is being able to realize that a lot of a lot of things actually fall into the social and emotional parts more than the functional part. So I did a I did a, a podcast or a, an event where I talked about like talking to bankers and I said like nobody wants a loan. They want a new house, they want a new car, they want to basically, you know, move, they want to build a business, but they don't want a loan. They want these other things and so stop talking about the loan and talking about the progress you can help them make. And so it's let's see the banking on purpose uh, conference I did the, probably 3 4 years ago, but I did a live interview of somebody who re refused to talk to their bank their current bank, because they were afraid that if they told them what they wanted to do, they might pull the loan. And ultimately they end up going with a completely different bank and paying a higher rate because at some point they knew that they were going to help them more than the current bank. And the current bank never even got noticed that it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, right? and so, it makes and so me... Part so Go part ahead. of this is sorry. Part of this is helping to understand what are the forces at, at play that cause somebody to say, "Today's the day I'm going to switch my investment." The other part is what's the timeline? Like where do they have the first thought? And then what does passive looking look like for them to start? Like, well, maybe I should do. And maybe fifty grand is is actually you know active looking for them. That's not actually deciding to invest. That's more like I'm just trying it out. I want to see how it works. You know, when when real for for them a big investment might be when I'm going to put 2 million in or 3 million in. Yeah. And so so this is where you have to understand what's their commitment. Like if they're ready willing to lose it, that may actually be just looking for them. That's not actually investing to them. When you think about when you think about questions that that get to that causality, yeah. What what are example questions of of so, how so somebody that, even got to active looking, for instance? Like, yeah. What, what's the question? Is what's a you know? Because they're not going to so, know the term active looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do, they don't right. So so the aspect here is, is 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 first of all, we only talk to people who have actually changed investments. We don't talk okay. to anybody who has kept their, like, it's the notion of why did you change? So we're actually look, we're looking for consumers or customers who have actually innovated to make progress, right? So somebody who has actually put a lot of money into real estate or maybe a lot of money not into real estate, not through your fund, through any fund, right? What caused them to say today's the day, right? And then you start to say like, all right, now we're going to take the timeline. So the other thing besides the forces, there's a timeline. 
And you say, like, when did you have the first thought that, like, boy, you know what? What I'm doing right now isn't working. And then what caused you to say, like, mm, I should start to look? Like, how did you look? And what you started, well, well, I talked to some of my investment friends. I talked to, like, it's kind of like what, when you start to look for a car, the last thing you want to do is go talk to the salesman at the car dealer, right? So they're, they're, they're looking at cars. They're talking to people at the gas station. They're doing like, they're, they're, so how do they actually look without actually technically looking? And then what caused them to say, mm, I need to get serious about this. That's when they go to active looking. That's when they're actually, you know, now spending active, they're, they're, they're putting energy into figuring it out. And then there's deciding, how did they decide? And like, they'll say, oh, I trusted that person. And you're going to go like, what did that person do to cause trust? And so part of this is, First of all, I never have a list of questions. Never. I know that sounds crazy. I just have those two frameworks. And what I what I try to do is understand what are the underlying causes that got there. And everybody goes through those four phases. First thought, passive looking, active looking, deciding. And then once they've done it, how do they actually know it was a good investment? What was their metric of progress? And so part of this is basically making sure that you understand how, how did they figure this out? Nobody randomly decides to put money in real estate. It just doesn't happen. And so, and what we would say is the way that sales was taught to most people is, well, it's a number. If you make a hundred calls, you get 25 pickups, 25 pickups gets you 12 appointments, 12 appointments gets you, you know, you know, eight meetings, eight meetings gets you two proposals, which actually gets you close one. So that's how that, you know, and they think it's a math game. They think of it as probability theory, as opposed to causality. What causes that one person to say today's the day? Because we think the other 99 don't want to make progress. They don't want to buy our product. But the reality is they're going to make progress sometime. Are they just at a different point in time in the timeline? Or are they actually just, they're, they're actually not, not in the job that we can actually fulfill? You know, I think it's been, we've only been emailing for a couple of weeks here. Again, read your book twice and I've listened to at least 10 or 12 of your interviews with other people, right? Yeah. And I've seen that slide, but for some reason, when you were just going through it with me, yeah, I, I just had this thought of like, you know, I've done 500 episodes of this show. Like I know how to interview people to some degree, right? So yeah. if I just took that framework and I got a, a whole bunch of people who have actually done it yep. to just fill in all the story gaps for that whole thing. And I had a number of those beside each other. Like that would just give me such a sense for what people's experience is so that, like you said, it could help them make, make progress. Yeah. But so here's the thing is people don't, this is why. So there's another book I would recommend by Chris Voss. It's called never split the difference. Yeah, I love that one. And he teaches basically how to do the, the interrogation method. So I went and learned it back in the early nineties, but he's done a great job at kind of laying that all out and never even, I would never even attempt a book like that. So it's, it's, his is a million times better than anything I've ever seen. And, and the reality is, is that at some point people, if you ask somebody why they bought a new car or got my favorite, why they got new windows, they'll say, Oh, I got a deal on them. And so everybody thinks the deal is the reason why they got windows. It's like, no, they're this old. They've decided to stay. The fact is, is the house is one of the you know, ugliest in the neighborhood. Like there's a whole bunch of other causal factors that they will never admit to that, that, that you have to actually interrogate out of them. Like why wind, why these windows? Right. It's like, and, and most people think that, well, I bought the windows because they were Marvin windows or they're Anderson windows. It's like that, that, that has nothing to do with why they bought windows. There's, there's a whole bunch of causality way before that, that like, like how they decided Anderson over, over Pella over Marvin is like, that's, that's what we would call hiring criteria, but that's not what caused them to buy windows. 
right? And so this is where you have to be able to listen and you have to be able to hear and you have to listen for pauses and you have to watch their body language. And there's a whole bunch of things where, where you know, I always ask somebody first time, first time I'm interviewing them, I'll say, all right, so tell me why you picked this college or why did you pick this car or this mattress or whatever? And they'll give you three or four main reasons. And I'll say, okay, great. And I literally write that off in the side. And then we talk through the whole story and you just realize like, what they told you up front was the lie that they told themselves to make them feel good, but that's not the reason why they bought it. Right. And so this is where you can't, you can't ask them to fill it out because it's just, it's not, you have to, I call, there's like layers. This first top layer is I call it the cake layer of just crap. Oh, it was, it was fun. It was exciting. It was new. It was easy. It was like, but then there's this next layer. It's like, you know, Chateaubriand, like this meat layer that literally is like, what are those really things? I trusted somebody. That's a pablum. That's a cake layer. What did you do to trust? Well, they didn't actually tell me, you know, they didn't drop names. They literally told me, they asked me a thousand questions about myself and they told me, no, it's like, that's how they earn trust. I can tell you the underlying causal mechanism for people to say why I trusted you. And I can also tell you why they don't trust you, but you have to listen and you have to dig and you have to unpack the cake layer of crap. You know, it's by the way, one sorry, of, one of Chris Voss's good. I would just say is like, people will say the reason why they don't buy something is price. And if I would, I will tell you, it's never about price. Never. Right. And this is where you go. Like, what do you mean? It's never about price. It's like, they either didn't think they had the value. They didn't, weren't willing to go into debt to buy something like it's a whole bunch of other things because price is merely an effect, not a cause, not a cause. Mm. Right. You know, one of one of Chris Voss's former colleagues is one of my employees, and it's amazing the amount of those. He was he was FBI SWAT and did the hostage negotiator thing, and then did a dozen years in FBI counterintelligence. You know, yep. and those guys' ability to read humans is just incredible, right? I, I feel like when you're saying that, is it almost a little bit like being an investigative journalist? Like, more. it's more than that because you got to ask the questions that are on. Unc- at some point. The journalist is looking for the story and, and the story is like, you can write the storyline at some level. You're actually trying to figure out what are the dominoes that had to fall in their lives to say, today's the day I'm going to move my portfolio around and move it to real estate. If it's not random, I mean, the story can be what, what they did with it. But the fact is, is half the time investigative journalism is like only halfway down to me. It's deeper than that. It's the same kind of look, but here's the thing is you need to be able to, to, to like, you don't want to judge. You're not judging them. You're saying like, like, wait, I'm confused. I don't understand what happened from here to here. Like at some point you're getting a great return and these people are doing great for you. Why, why in the world would you, why would you leave them? Well, it's just been too long. What does that mean? It's been too like, You'd write down too long and move on and be like, no, 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 no. What does too long mean? Why, why is it too long? What, like we're getting too comfortable. What, what, what does that mean? Right? <laughs> like what, what shows you? It's like, well, you know, our last meeting, they basically said this and this, and I felt like we we're going through the motions. Okay. But they've given you great returns. Yeah. It feels like they're getting stale. What do you, what does that mean? It's like, well, I don't know if they're hustling as much as they should. Cause I got people talking to me all the time and I feel like they're, they've got an algorithm and they know what they're doing and that's where it is. I'm like, but isn't that what you want? He's like, yeah, but I just don't feel like they're working hard enough. There we go. Now we're going. But it's like this whole notion of like, you got to, you got to. So when I went to Japan, they would, they would talk about this notion of the five whys. You got to go five whys. And I, 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 I didn't really understand it that well. I was very young at the time. But they used to use these words like, I need technology agnostic requirements from the customer. 
I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, I need you to tell me what the customer wants to happen in their lives, irrelevant of the solution that we give them. I'm like, that's really hard to do. I'm like, yep, go do it. I'm like, wait, I don't know how. That's how I figured this out. So you're trying to find irrelevant of the investments. Why? Like, like even though you know they did real estate investment, like what was going on in their lives that said today's the day I'm going to move my portfolio around. And what you start to realize, it's not one thing. It's not two things. It's a set of things. It's a combination of pushes and pulls and anxieties and habits that literally come together in that context that enable people to go like, yep, I got to I got to do this. And what you realize is there are people who are halfway down the path. There are people who have gone, been on the other side of it. But it's understanding those forces that cause people to do that. That's how you end up then either building better product, better marketing, better partnerships, better strategy. All of that comes from understanding the demand side. You know, I, I really appreciate your example there. I think that role playing of like the why, why, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like it, it makes it so clear. So I appreciate that. But just so I'm clear, I'm not interrogating them. I'm literally going like, I'm confused. I don't know what that means. Or I think, I, the, the, so what's happening is I'm actually putting the doubt on me, not on them. And the moment I put the doubt on me, they want to help me. Like, what do you mean by trust? Like, did you trust them before? Right? You, you know what I mean? Like you, you have to be empathetic and understand and try to understand where they're coming from without judgment, which takes practice. Because you could go like, why did you trust them? <laughs> Why it. did you do that? Like, and it's like, that, that doesn't work. And it's like, you gotta go like, wait a second. Why would you do that? Like, you just see the difference in the way I say those yeah. words. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm it. talking about. Okay. Everybody, this is why you all need to go to audible.com right now and get your own copy of demand side <laughs> sales 101. Bob, I, I feel like I have like eight more pages of questions for you. We got to have you back on the show sometimes. So I would, I would love to come back. My favorite would be is let's do an interview live. Okay. And I can either, and, and my thing is, 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 is you and I can interview somebody else and we yeah. just figure out kind of like what caused them to do something, right? Like, for example, what causes somebody to listen to your podcast of all these podcasts? Why this one? What, what job do they hire it for? <laughs> right. And why not something else? And, and, and like, you know, if, if they switched away, it's like, where did they go? Yeah. Like, nobody has any extra time. Yeah. Yeah. No so. kidding. Well, I appreciate all the time you've given us. We'll for sure have you back on. All right. And uh, I'm here for you when you're ready. And my thing is, is get, get as many questions as you can from your, from your listeners. And my, my job is to help you and your listeners make progress around understanding what causes you, uh, you know, the world to move, right? Great. What causes them to, to change. And, and tell everybody, what's the URL for your company, for Rewired Group? Uh, it's uh, The Rewired Group. It's a very small boutique kind of innovation firm. We help people develop products. We do 20... Let's see. We used to do about 40. We do about 20, 25 products a year of services. And we, we do everything from, you know, jobs is just one of 25 different methods and tools we use to help kind of bring stuff to market. So we're building all the time. I get to build every day, every day. So. I love it. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we'll, we'll have Bob back on so you guys can learn some more. Great. Thanks for having me. See ya.